Hello, everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff, uh, back with Economics Matters, the podcast. I'm delighted to have Sebastian Edwards. Sebastian's an old friend uh, and a close friend. Uh, he's the Henry Ford II, or second, the Henry Ford II Professor of International Economics at the University of California in Los Angeles. Uh, from 93 to 96, he was the chief economist for Latin America at the World Bank. He's published 15 books and over 200 scholar, scholarly articles, uh, just 15 books. I don't know, you're, you're a little bit behind me here, but uh, you're a little younger, so I'm gonna give you some time. He's the co-director of the National Bureau of Economic Research's Africa Project. So Sebastian's uh, really a global economist. He's uh, really an expert, or my go-to expert on Latin America, but uh, he's also really one of the top experts in the world on Africa, of the economics in Africa. So we'll be getting into a little bit of his knowledge about those two regions. But in general, you can talk to Sebastian about any issue under the sun in economics, and he's going to give you the right answer. He's been an advisor to many governments, financial institutions, multinationals. He's a frequent commentator on CNN and other cable outlets. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times, El Pais, which is the Spanish, top Spanish newspaper, uh, another one called La Vanguardia in Spain, Claren, uh, which is an Argentine paper, El Mercurio is the top paper in Chile, and other newspapers from around the world. He's been an expert witness in a lot of uh, legal cases in the U.S. and other nations, and he's a frequent speaker at financial and industrial meeting, industry meetings. He's also a member of a bunch of corporate and nonprofit boards. So the latest book um, that he's written uh, out of the, the 15 is um, called The uh, Chile Project, The Story of the Chicago Boys and the Downfall of neoliberalism. Uh, it's important to note that Sebastian himself is a Chicago boy. He uh, uh, graduated, got a BA at the uh, Universidad Católica in Chile in 1975. He got an MA in economics at the University of Chicago in 1978. And in 1981, he got a, a PhD in economics in, in Chicago. But the Chicago boys refers to the uh, Chicago-oriented economists, not all of them were PhDs from Chicago uh, or professors from Chicago, but um, Milton Friedman and, um, and uh, let's see, uh, uh, I guess uh, some, several other uh, more senior economists and then younger economists from the University of Chicago went down to help the uh, Pinochet government uh, developed the Chilean economy after the uh, takeover of the coup that occurred, I guess in 1973, where Allende was uh, disposed. So, uh, you know, just uh, helping a, a dictator by itself is, is questionable, highly questionable. And given that we're talking about Pinochet, it's extremely questionable, but so Sebastian's not any part of that. So let me just be clear when I say he's a Chicago boy, he's Chicago trained, but not everybody from Chicago went down to help Pinochet, but we will talk about Sebastian's uh, new book and um, 
I haven't read it yet, but I'm delighted to hear about it, and we'll we'll read it. And uh, he's with us today. He had a little bit of a a, a mole removed uh, from his lip here. That's why he's got a little band aid, but no big deal. Um, Sebastian, welcome. Terrific to have you. Larry, it's a real honor to be on your podcast and to be able to talk to you about economics and other stuff. Cool. That's terrific. So why don't we start with you? You're telling people about kind of your background, where you were born and what part of Chile and how you ended up becoming, going to uh, Catolica, becoming you know a major in economics and then getting into Chicago. It's not an everyday event. When I went to grad school at, at Harvard, I should, uh, I'm not trying to brag or anything about going to Harvard, Chicago, I think it was ranked higher than Chicago, than Harvard at the time. And arguably still is, um, but I ran into one person from Chile uh, at Chicago in my class. There were three of us from the University of Pennsylvania, one from India, one from Iran, one from Ireland, one from Chile. He happened to be named Sebastian Panera. Uh, he's the uh, former president. He, he's the two-term president. He just uh, passed the baton a few months ago uh, to the current president. So Sebastian and I became really close buddies. And uh, actually he was my first, we wrote together our first paper, published papers. Um, so uh, we've been uh, close friends ever since. So you can never tell who you'll meet at a place like Harvard it's, uh, uh, or Chicago. But um, anyway, getting, the, the point I'm trying to make is that it takes, you know, if, there are, if you're only gonna have one Chilean a PhD student from Chile, person has to be quite unique and, and really pretty, pretty darn good. And one same thing with the University of Chicago. So to be chosen as a Chilean student at the University of Chicago is quite a feat. Anyway, Sebastian, you, you talk, I'll stop talking. Tell us about yourself. Um, okay, Larry. Uh, so um, I, so I was born in Chile and um, a long, long, long time ago, not as long ago as you were, but a long time ago, uh, in 1953. And the uh, South American university system is more like the European continental system. We don't have liberal arts. You go straight into a career, a profession. And uh, um, I was not decided when I was in high school uh, whether to go into the law or into economics. And um, my main interest was really politics as is your main interest and one your main interest. And um, at the time, um, yeah. um, uh, that was 1970, uh, economics seemed to be the key to any political uh, development. So I decided to become an economist um, and um, I was a left-wing activist when I went to college. So my career starts as a left-wing activist. And I went to a national university. That's where uh, most uh, left-wing people went and it made a lot of uh, noise and, and uh, demonstration that we had demonstrated and so on and so forth. What was really interesting is that as soon as I go to school, um, uh, President Salvador Allende, who is the first Marxist to be elected uh, to a high office in the world, uh, becomes president. So uh, all of a sudden we are on the side of the establishment. The president belongs to our side and we're all left in the, 
what we really were looking for was to go out in the street and demonstrate and, uh, and chant uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, slogans uh, against the US and other imperialist forces. Um, three years come by, and uh, we can talk about Allende and the very, very bad economic outcome uh, that came about. And then there is the coup on September 11, 1973. And all of us left-wing students are expelled from school. And um, I was a very good student, in spite of being an activist. And I applied to transfer to the Catholic University, which was the private school where all the elite went to. And it was um, a Chicago-oriented school. All the professors were Chicago grads. And it was a cultural shock for me uh, going from learning Marxism to learning Chicago-style economics. But I sort of fell in love with it um, quite rapidly. Um, and uh, um, by, with the rigor, the uh, methodology, the um, serious commitment to applied work, to empirical work. And I met Al Harberger, uh, who was the chairman of the Department of Economics at Chicago, a great economist, a superstar in public finance. And uh, I became, when he came to Chile, I became his um, assistant, an array. And uh, a few, um, in 1977, uh, the dictatorship was uh, in power. I was working for a conglomerate as a junior economist, and I got into political trouble. Nothing serious except that I wrote uh, an article that questioned some of the policies. And um, I uh, was told, you need to leave Chile now. Otherwise, something horrible will happen to you. And I had not applied to school. I was thinking of going to MIT. My interest was in international economics. And I worked um, on the side as a translator. And I had translated two articles by Rudy Dornbusch. Uh, and I just fell in love with the work that Rudy was doing, very elegant modeling. I knew that it was related to uh, Bob Mandel's style of economics. So my idea was, I will go to MIT, but a year hence, or maybe two years. But then I'm, said, I'm told, uh, you better leave the country or the military will, will just grab you and send you to prison. And I talked to my boss, who is a Chicago boy, Rolf Luders, um, and he said, go to Chicago. And I said, but I haven't applied. I haven't taken the GRE. Yet. And he said, no, Matt, no problem. And he called Harburger and he tells um, Al, uh, remember Sebastian, the kid that helps you when you come around and drives you around and gets you gin and tonics and so on and so forth. At that time, Al was uh, still drinking and we had drinks at the bars. And Al said, yes, I remember. And so Rule said, well, why would you take him in? He hasn't taken the GRE or anything, but he's in trouble. Would you take him in? And Al Harburger says, well, who's going to pay for tuition? And Luther says, us, the conglomerate, for one year. If he's good enough, you'll uh, finance him uh, from um, and fund him from then onward. Otherwise, if he's not good enough, well, too bad for him. He comes back and goes to prison, I guess. And that's the story. So that's how I went to Chicago. And wow. it was a magical time. So um, if, uh, Milton had just left. But that meant that Lucas had just arrived. So I take macro from Bob Lucas. I take my first course on monetary economics from Don Patinkin. At the time, Israeli professors spent 
every other year in the US to get a little money because the salaries in Israel were very low. I got Gary Becker, I got T.W. Schultz, George Stigler, Jim Heckman, and, and it was magical. I mean, I was there from 77 to 81. And then there are other stories, but let's stop there for now. Well, that's fantastic. And then you came to UCLA, you, you went to UCLA at that point, right? Yes. Well, I had a debt in Chile because uh, Rolf actually, Luders, when he said, told a harbinger, we'll uh, fund the first year, he lent me the money. I had a loan and I had to pay it back. So I did not, uh, and, and my father had given his, uh, uh, had given the collateral, which was his house at the beach which had taken him decades to actually buy. He always wanted to have one. And finally, when he was in his middle age, he was able to. And so if I didn't come back to Chile, um, um, Rolf Luders would get my father's house. So I didn't apply to go to the, uh, uh, to the market. And one day I get uh, uh, in the elevator and Sherwin Rosen, who was the placement faculty at that time, um, I don't know if I can say what I'm going to say here, but it's your podcast. I'll say it and you can censor me. He, we get just the two of us and he looks at me and says, Edwards, you are an arrogant son of a bitch. And I'm shocked. And I say, why Professor Rosen, what's going on? You, remember, this is 1980 and there's no uh, internet, nothing. And he said, I've received phone calls from every top school They've written you several letters asking you for a meeting, uh, for, for interviews at the meeting, and you don't even answer. So I tell Sherwin, listen, I, I'm not going to the meetings. I'm going back to Chile because I have to pay this debt. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to the meetings. And he asked me how much I owed, right? And it was, I don't know, $40,000, $50,000. It was a lot of money for me, a lot of money in a poor country. But, and he said, we'll form a syndicate here. And we will finance it if you get a good job. Otherwise, if you, I mean, if you don't get a good offer, then could you go back? And so that's why I went to the meetings and I got uh, good interviews. And then I was I, I got an offer from UCLA, where you we were at the time a postdoc, I think. And um, but we didn't overlap. Um, and I told uh, Sherwin, uh, this is the offer that I got. I got other offers, but this was the one that I liked. And he said, by all means, go. And then I did go, uh, but then Rolf Luders forgave my debt. So they didn't have to actually form the syndicate and, and pay him back. He said, as long as you come back every summer for two and a half to three months, uh, you can do this and, and, and stay at UCLA and see how it goes. And, uh, and I stayed and I was very lucky. The kind of research I was interested in um, there was interest uh, in the profession about uh, the uh, emerging markets, the market reforms. A few years uh, years later, the Berlin Wall came down, then the Eastern European countries joined in. They had to learn lessons from Latin America. And I was very fortunate, um, uh, got a bunch of papers published, uh, got tenure. And uh, uh, oh, Chile then went into a big crisis, a big devaluation. And uh, then it's, it, it, at that point exposed, it made a lot of sense that I stayed in the U.S. Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. 
Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. Well, that's a that's an amazing story. Sher- Sherwin was a quite a character and a lo- fantastic, lovely guy. I've known stories about Sherwin, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, he sense. told me he took me to the Quadrangle Club. He told me come back. I mean, between the Son of a Bitch uh, part and and the syndicate, he'd say, uh, and we went to the Quadrangle and we had dry. I had never had a dry martini before, um, and I had a dry martini, um, and and I. I um, I liked it, so I've been having dry martinis since. <laughs> I remember giving a talk at Chicago and drinking with Harry Johnson. And... Yeah, well, there, there was a there was a long tradition at the time of a lot of drinking. Harry um, and, and Sherwin was ignored, but um, Al Harbinger, Bob Mandel, there was yeah. a lot of heavy drinking at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it helped any of these guys, but I tried to keep up. I wasn't able. But, yeah, uh, no, no. Yeah, that, well, I learned the hard way uh, that I couldn't keep up with Al Harbour when he was drinking. So Al is much taller than me. He may be 6'2", or maybe 6'2", I think. He's still alive. He's 99 now. So yeah. Al was 6'2", and I guess 240 pounds. And I am, I don't know, 5'8", maybe 5'7", and I'm 150 pounds at the time. And I didn't realize, I was a kid, I didn't realize that your weight and your size was related to how much you could handle. So I tried to keep up with Al, and then then someone told me, "Listen, you weigh one half of whatever, sixty percent of what he weighs. So you cannot drink more than sixty percent of what he drinks." Right. So, so Al, you know, is a fantastic economist. I've been nominating him off and on for the Nobel Prize. Uh, I hope he's not, you know. I hope he's doing okay phys- physically that um, he could still get it because I think he's, if you look around at uh, people who made enormous contributions, I think he was tainted us a bit. I don't know whether I have this right, but I think he did try and help the Pinochet regime along with Milton Friedman. And that may be, you know, the kiss of death for getting that award because the award has some political ramifications. But just if we're talking not about his political involvements or his consulting work, if we're just talking about his pure contribution economics. Yeah, he was, was tainted, but he definitely was tainted by that association with the Pinochet regime. Although one of the points that I make in my, in my new book, the Chicago Boys, this book, is that and and uh, it comes it comes out from uh, um, an interview that I did with Al is that he was very different from Milk. He was not a clone of Milton, uh, and and there, in fact, uh, by doing the research for this book, Larry, I found in the Friedman archives correspondence between Gary Becker and Milton. And uh, Gary writes to Milton and says, um, I've been trying to convince Al Harberger 
to join the Mont Pelerin Society. And he says that he is doubtful, Herberger is doubtful, because he thinks that we are too doctrinaire and ideologues. Could you write to him and tell him that that was the case in the past, but now the society has evolved and there's lots of good people and pragmatic people and serious people. And so I, we have archival evidence that Harberger did not want to join the MPS, which he did at the end, right? Uh, but but uh, because he said, well, I'm not like Milton. I am more pragmatic, more uh, centered, uh, that kind of thing. So it's it's very, very interesting. Just so everybody knows, Milton here is Milton Friedman. Uh, yeah. Because we have a lot of younger, you know, viewers and listeners. And Milton Friedman was, uh, you know, also received the, uh, the Nobel Prize. He was the most prominent Chicago economist, uh, one of the, the most prominent economists of the day, what I would say in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. He was on the tube quite a bit. He wrote um, a book called Free to Choose. He had a series that I think PBS aired, which was talking about the values of capitalism. And uh, he was very persuasive. I mean, fantastic public speaker and, you know, always had a an a comeback for anybody who was questioning capitalism, uh, but uh, very political, no question about it. I mean, very, not political in the sense of favoring a, you know, like currently we have politicians or people that are, like bowing down to Trump, for example, he was never connected to any politician per se, but he was political in favor of capitalism. This was, it went beyond just being an academic and looking and talking about the pros and cons. It was, I am in love with capitalism and this is the only answer. And of course it was in response partly to uh, the Soviet Union that he was kind of making the contrast. But since we're on to Chile and these guys, why don't we talk about your book first, and then we'll round things out by talking about uh, South America in general uh, today, where things are, and also Africa. But uh, let's give us a few minutes about the book. Summarize the book for us. Sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, the book is a, um, you can look at it from many different perspectives. One, one way of thinking about it is uh, the transfer of knowledge from the US, from Chicago specifically, to uh, Latin America in terms of economic policy. Um, now, that transfer starts with the Chile project, which was sponsored and uh, financed by the State Department. And it's part of Harry Truman's point four uh, strategy. So until Truman uh, became uh, president during his, uh, not when he assumed that was vice president when FDR died, but when he was elected. Until that time, foreign aid was not part of U.S. policy. It was, they would aid a country, there was a earthquake, but there was no part, it was not part of foreign policy. And then he makes it part of foreign policy. It's the beginning of the Cold War. And uh, T.W. Schultz, another Chicago uh, professor who also got the Nobel Prize, and he was one of the most important, most influential agricultural economists who um, ironically was at Chicago, which is a, an urban university, but that's another story how he got there, right? From Iowa. So T.W. Schultz uh, had been uh, assisting, providing technical assistance through the State Department to a number of Latin American countries. And he taught farmers um, uh, about fertilizers and this and that, and 
and human capital and training um, best other workers and so on. And he realized that he was making no progress because the other policies were awful. Protectionism, overvalued exchange rate, regulation, the price system was not providing signals and so on and so forth. So he decided that the only way for his specific assistance, which was agricultural economics in very detail, could only work if the country had good overall economies that could understand the big picture. And then he said that those should come from local universities in Argentina, Mexico, Peru, and so on. And then he realized that these universities were people by economists who were Keynesians or Marxists, or what in Latin America we call structuralists, which is a mixture between those. Two. And there was no one who really understood the price system and so on. So he found one um, uh, um, officer of what became USAID, a guy called uh, Pat Patterson. His first name was Albion, but his nickname was Pat, who was sympathetic with this idea. And Patterson was in Paraguay, but then he was transferred to Chile. So why did Chile become the country? Basically because Pat Patterson, who was pushing from inside the State Department, was uh, posted uh, to Chile. And then, uh, this, um, so T.W. Schultz goes to Chile in 1955 with three of his colleagues, as a team of four. And who are the other three? Al Harberger, who is an assistant professor, Earl Hamilton, the very famous economic historian, and um, uh, Simon Rottenberg, um, uh, who is a very good economist. I mean, he's past very good economist. His most important work is on the economics of baseball. Okay. Now, Hamilton uh, was an expert on Spain. And he had studied in great detail the Spanish inflation after the discovery of the New World and the great increase in the supply of gold and silver. Harberger had been trained as a Spanish linguist during World War II in case uh, the US invaded or part of the invasion would come through Spain. So they trained a whole bunch of linguists. And Cy Rodenberg had lived as a kid in Puerto Rico. So he just picks these three people who speak Spanish. And they come to Chile and they talk to some and they sign an agreement with the Catholic University. And the main aspect of the agreement is that the Catholic University makes a commitment to hire four graduates as full-time faculty and pay them market salaries. And they start training other economists. And so your friend Sebastian Pinera, who became the president of Chile in, twice, is one of those who is trained by the Chicago boys from the first group that goes to Chicago. Very interesting anecdote is that when these guys go, they go to Chicago, they take classes from Friedman, from Frank Knight, uh, uh, Metz, uh, Metzler, um, the, the, the Harry, and so on. They come back and they flunk everyone, literally 100% of the class is flunked because now they teach them modern economics. It's not, it stops being a trade school. It becomes a real, really high, high quality school. And then the, the chancellor calls them into their office and says, look, you're flunking the children of the elite. And th this elite is supposed to leave to the church their farms and their property. And now they're not gonna give the church a property when they die because you're flanking all of them. So you have to allow them, uh, you have to um, uh, give them passing grades. And they said, no. And unless they know how to invert a matrix, three by three matrix in no more than, I don't know, so many minutes, 
they are not going to, we're not going to pass them. And it's, it's the book is full of those kind of anecdotes, right? Which are very interesting. And, and at the end, no one pays attention to them. They try to convince uh, people, uh, policymakers, Congress to adopt some Chicago-related policies. And everyone says, you, are, you guys are crazy. Freeing interest rates, crazy. Lowering import tariffs, crazy. Freeing prices, crazy. Uh, reducing subsidies uh, to us because of the, the private sector, you guys are crazy. And the only opportunity to actually act and to be influential is when the Pinochet takes over and the coup starts. So that's a relationship, that, that's the original sin, right? And they take over and there are lots of stories and details and Friedman comes, meets with Pinochet. That costs him a lot. There, everywhere he goes from 75 onward, there are demonstrators accusing him of um, helping one of the worst dictators in the history of humanity and so on and so forth. Um, but the Chicago West had this original sin, but to make a long story short, the new economic system based on competition, free trade, price signal, no deficit, low inflation, and so on and so forth, produces a miracle. And Chile goes from being country number nine out of 18 in Latin America, so it's in the middle, to be number one by a wide margin. And that's the economic miracle with a very serious original sin, uh, which is the, 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 the coup and the, and, and the violation of human rights. So the book tells that story. And then what is amazing is that when democracy comes back in 1990, those, the, the people who take over have been, many of them exiled, put in prison and tortured by Pinochet. And in spite of that, they maintain the economic policies of the Chicago West and they deepen them and they go further. And what I, I couch this into the, the notion of a war of ideas, Keynesianism, protectionism, structuralism, Marxism versus the free market. And the greatest sign that you have won a war of ideas is when your opponent adopts your ideas as his own, right? And that's what happens in 1990. And then um, I, I, I decided, Larry, that I was going to accept the term neoliberal uh, for this policy, although it has become sort of an insult of sorts, but it's used so widely that I said, well, I, I shouldn't ignore it. So I have a long chapter explaining what is neoliberalism going to the historical origins in 1938 and so on. And then the story goes on and on and on. And, and, and it ends with the Chilean paradox, which is the country that has done the best in Latin America, suffers in 2018 a great, um, there is a revolt. And there are demonstrations and, uh, and uh, a move towards the left and, and uh, an attempt to rewrite the constitution. Uh, and this left, real left-wing activist, a 36-year-old Gabriel Boric is elected president. He's the current president. So it's a history of thought, it's a history of reforms, it's a history of the transfer of ideas from Chicago to Chile, history also of a dictatorship that is very cruel. And it's a, and it's a, it's a the book has been so far very well received. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm dying to read it. I'm sure everybody, everybody should take, take, should get it, The Chicago Boys by Sebastian Edward. When you said uh, the new, the current president, he was elected just recently, not 2018. 
No, he was no, he was elected in 2022. Uh, 20. Oh. Yeah, he was. He took over in 2021. He took over in 2022. So he's been in power for an, a year and a half now. Right. So Sebastian, yeah. When Sebastian yeah. was president for the second time, there were uh, continual demonstrations against him. Uh, so I think the we should explain to folks that when Pinochet stepped aside. Uh, and I guess he was allowed to, he was never put in jail or prosecuted from what I gather, but there have been a series of kind of left-leaning and then right-leaning presidents kind of swapping every four years. Uh, well, it, it, yes and no. The, the first 20 years was the left, 20 years of less, yeah. So uh, uh, there is the first president, President Patricio Elwin, then President Eduardo Frey, then President Ricardo Lagos, then President Michelle Bachelet, so four left-wing presidents. Um, and some of them, as I said, have been put in prison by the dictatorship. And they all deepened the reforms. They stayed with the free market reforms. And they, they were seduced by the success of the Chicagoans. And then comes Sebastian Pinera, right-wing, uh, conservative. Then Michelle Bachelet again, then Pinera again. And now this guy, Gabriel Boric, um, who is far left. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. Right. So... I would say that the you know who you know you describe them as left wing, but the the presidents uh, after Pinochet were relatively moderate because you know the country. I don't. I, that's my take. And then Sebastian comes in, and he's you know we could say he's right wing, but my understanding was that he was also rel relatively moderate. That you know that if you looked at his policies, they would be viewed as. Democratic in the U.S. and the you'd be like a member of the Democrats, not a member of the Republicans in terms of what he was pushing. Uh, well, for. yes and no. I mean, the, the the initial conditions, as you know, are important. So he takes over when he takes over. Already, the pension system is um, individual savings accounts um, exclusively. So uh, if he doesn't reform the system moving towards that elusive end that many Republicans have been trying to obtain. But the system is like that because the Pinochet, the Chicago boys under Pinochet created that system. Well, that so, was a Harvard boy, Sebastian's brother, Pepe, Jose Pinero, Pepe is his nickname, who actually implemented as a labor, as labor minister under, he went to Chicago, got a, uh, sorry, Harvard. He went to Harvard. Harvard got a PhD. I met him at the same time. He was 
uh, you know, that I met Sebastian pretty much, but he was back helping, went back to help Pinochet and becomes labor minister. And I think in 81 introduces this uh, pension system, which is uh, to me, screwed up the way he implemented it. It could have been a perfectly well done system where you invest people in the global market, but uh, the regulation was really oriented towards making the banks rich, not the public in my view. And I think it's by and large not succeeded, although maybe you have a different view uh, because of the way it was structured, not not because of the original. No, no, no. I, I agree with that. So so the idea of having uh, saving, saving accounts uh, in the, um, which are mandated. So they are not, because there's no, there, and now there is, but at that time there was no uh, government uh, run minimal uh, uh, social security thing. It was poorly um, uh, structured uh, for several reasons. First, the rate of savings, the rate of contribution was too low, 10% of salary. Um, at first, because Chile was very poor in terms of the capital stock, the return of those savings was very high. But as the capital stock grew, this is what we teach undergrads, right? Then the rate of return started going down. They allowed to diversify and to invest internationally, but now if you only save 10% and, and life expectancy is very high, 10% um, is not going to be enough. Um, one of the, the, the big successes or, or metrics of the success of the Chicago Boys Revolution is that life expectancy went through the roof from 72 years old to 90. Uh, when I was growing up in Chile, life expectancy in Chile was like four years lower than Argentina. Now it's four years higher than Argentina. Right? Now the Argies are, have not done a very good job at taking care of themselves, but that's a different story. So the rate, the, the OECD rate of contribution to the uh, social degree system is uh, on the, the median and the average is 20%. Chile is 10%. And the other big mistake in the way it was structured is that only people who were formerly employed had to contribute. And there's a lot of turnover in the, in the, in the labor market. So on average, or the median, median is more important. You know, median number of years of contribution is 20, uh, 20 years rather than 40. So if you have a rate of contribution that is one half of the norm, 10% rather than 20, and you contribute only half of the norm in terms of years, 20 years instead of 40, you're going to get one half times one half, a pension that is 25% of the norm. Plus there, was, uh, That's what high, plus there were very high fees. Very high. Well, the fees were very high. Then they went down. The, the, the fees issue is a very complicated one. And I think that you've thought a lot about this, uh, Larry. Uh, when you start a system from zero, you cannot charge fee, fees on AUM, on assets under management, because the assets are zero. <laughs> so they started by charging fees that were a percentage of the contribution of the actual savings. And they would never switched and they are high they were very high they are still quite high uh and there's been a lot of i mean now the system is mature enough it's about 80 percent of gdp which in the u.s would be today i don't know 25 trillion so it's a big size for the this is a small it's a small country uh, but uh, they still charge the fees on your the flow 
Right. So it's just rather it's than on the, a, yeah. the AUM. Because if you had, you don't need to have like what they set up was led to like 20 different competing pension systems doing exactly the same thing because the regulations were such that if somebody deviated, they had to, to make up the difference in return. So everybody did the same thing at a very high cost. You could have just had a computer take right. all the money and invest it the same way. And there wouldn't have been any low fees rather than like 2% of wages or something ridiculous. And, uh, you know, this model uh, caught on that Pepe was pushing in Kazakhstan and in Hungary, in Argentina, in Bolivia. And because the bankers found an opportunity to grab money uh, to, you know, and uh, to charge high fees and have multiple. When I went to Bolivia, I was a consultant. Jeff Sachs took me down to be a consultant in Bolivia. And uh, uh, the president, um, uh, Sanchez de Lasada Goni, was trying to set up a pension reform like Chile. And he also wanted to have, like, in this, this small, poor country, all these different competing pension funds because the bankers were telling him, I said, forget about it, have one, put all the money into one global index and have it held abroad and give it give people individual accounts so that they have ownership and uh, and that they can grab that money anywhere in the world so that no gov future government can take it away from them. And what happened was that he didn't do that. He ended up choosing two uh, pension funds forget the name of an aficionado, anyway, uh, in Spanish, but uh, but the money was just invested basically in government bonds, not foreign securities. It wasn't individually owned. And then when Morales comes in to take over in a coup, uh, he undoes this from what I gather. And uh, because people were upset, partly about the pension system, uh, but if they had, own had ownership, this coup may never have happened. And and Goni might not have been exiled in, or had forced into exile into the U.S., and, but he was a tremendous president, from my perspective, a terrific person, is still. Uh, we're working at three in the morning every, every time I was down there for like five days in a row, you know, at 14,000 feet and we'll pause, can hardly breathe. Three in the morning, he's still working uh, with me. But anyway, that's uh, tell us tell us a bit about where uh, Chile is is today, and then we're, let's talk about South America in general. We may not have time to cover Africa today, but let's yeah, we'll do uh, Africa some other time. Yeah, yeah, so Chile is uh, doing um, as the French say, "comme ci comme ça." Not quite good, but not bad either. Um, it it had a very um, a spike in inflation uh, to 11%. Uh, the central bank uh, hiked interest rates very aggressively. And one of the of, of the big, big um, accomplishments of Latin America in general is that inflation in most countries with Argentina, Venezuela being the main exception, inflation has disappeared. I mean, it's reasonable. Uh, in the old time inflation in Latin America was three digits in lots of countries. This is the first time, Larry, in my professional career where inflation in Brazil is lower than in the US. And they have managed to do that by being extremely aggressive, having an independent central bank in Brazil, which now President Lula wants to get rid of the independence of the central bank. 
and, and hiking interest rates uh, with a lot of uh, courage. But I mean, you, you think about it that um, uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and Bolivia, when you were there, there was hyperinflation in Bolivia. Um, that was was uh, Jeff and the, and the team where you were you were a member of so we're trying to get get rid of and and to solve that problem. Peru, Colombia, all of these are three digits. Colombia less, but three digits. Uh, Venezuela, uh, three digits inflation caps, and now four percent, five percent. It's quite remarkable. Um, Chile is doing okay, but Chile has um, uh, a lot of future, a very bright future, and at the same time from the political point of view of some question marks. So where's the future? The future comes from the fact that Chile is the, has the second highest lithium deposits in the world. Another aspect of Chile is that it has the best, it's the best place to locate uh, windmills and generate clean energy. And that is in the southern tip of Patagonia where the two oceans match, they, 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 they come together and they sell lot of wind there. There's a lot of water also, sweet water, not non-salted water. So th th there is the thought, and there's now some foreign direct investment, that green hydrogen will be produced in big amounts. Um, and the third thing is, of course, um, the, the northern part of Chile, the desert, is one of the best locations for solar energy. So Energy seems to be in the future and, uh, and, and lithium, which is related to batteries. Now, the question is whether this, uh, na these natural resources are used in a reasonable way. The people who are in government now are protectionists, and they believe in um, add adding value to exports. So they want to produce uh, electrical vehicles in Chile, a country with 18 million people, which is very, very far. So it cannot be part of the global supply chain. If you do uh, in Chile manufacture one part of an electric vehicle and you send it back to anywhere in the world for the next step, and then it comes back, you ate the whole margin in transportation, right? This is the country for it. But the left says, no, we have to produce electrical cars. And, the, so uh, yes, lots of potential reaches, but we have to be <laughs> reasonable and not fall in the trap that we're going to produce the next. Uh, so I asked, I asked the minister, right? Do you think that Elon Musk has not um, built a plant for Tesla in the north of Chile where the lithium is because he's stupid or he doesn't know that there's lithium there? Or he did all the calculations and it just doesn't pay, right? Where is the, where where are the uh, big uh, battery uh, companies plants being? They're in Norway, very close to the VW <laughs> plants, right? And when anyway, so th that's where Chile is, and um, and the question and the question is, how which direction will the um, economic model take? Protectionism or free market? Yeah. Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. 
Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. What about um, uh, grids that would take the, you know, this, the green energy that's produced under these variety, different sources, wind or solar, um, and transport it to other parts of Latin America? Uh, is I know that there was a discussion and uh, there was controversy over uh, power lines being built from Patagonia through up to Santiago. Is that still that was that was that was canceled. The environmentalists won that battle, and now it's not on the books anymore. So the power the power lines that were going to go from Patagonia to Santiago are not going to be built. So now uh, the hydrogen is going to be liquefied and put into big tankers, and or they're going to be pipelines. But mostly, what people think now is big tankers that are going to ship them around the world. Uh, so that's that's the idea. Um, in the wind, there are in, there are other questions. For instance, uh, desalination um, plants. So the the left, of course, and the environmentalists are against anything that has an impact on the environment. So Chile has the number one copper deposits in the world, but it doesn't have water. It, it's uh, the, because of global warming, and copper is in the northern parts, close to the desert. So they are building lots of plants that are desalinized and taking the salt out of the water, but they are using Israeli, not surprisingly, Israeli technology. And the environmentalists say uh, that you cannot return, send the salt back into the ocean using Israeli technology because the composition of the ocean and the kind of uh, life that is there in the Eastern Mediterranean is very different than the Western Pacific. And so everything is, there's clash of, on everything. Everything you, you can think of, there's a clash. So it's a, Chile is now facing this sort of a point, uh, inflection point, and, and, and we could go, the country could go uh, left, or it could go clean and free markets. And, 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 uh, and in addition to this, there is an attempt to write a new constitution that will replace the Pinochet constitution. So. Uh, it's it's very interesting uh, so what's going on. What what's the current president? Is he receiving a lot of support, or is he viewed as floundering? Or what? Where? where... No, he's, he's he's floundering big time. He was elected with a big uh, majority. Uh, he got fifty six or uh, in the second round. We have like in France two rounds. So the first round he got like thirty percent, twenty eight percent, and then he in the second round it was him from the far left against a far right fellow. Um, and he got like 56, 58%. But since he has been using a lot of support. So right now he doesn't have a, um, a, a, a lot of uh, leverage. So he has to um, uh, get uh, in, in agreement with uh, the center uh, parties and, and uh, 
he's being accused of uh, betraying his far left base. So uh, it's uh, interesting and complicated at the same time. And do you, do you see the Constitution as ending up, uh, you know, pro, let's say, good economics or pro or do you think it's going to have any major impact on the economy, the way it's written, uh, or is this more about uh, the rule of law and human rights and so forth? And it's both. Right it's, education. Yeah. yeah, it's both. So there was a first attempt at building, at, at writing a new constitution that was last year, and it ended up in a referendum and the draft was rejected. So the far left got 80%, 78% of the vote to form the assembly. So 78% of the members were from the far left, which meant that the right had, that it didn't matter what the right or the center said. They wrote the constitution that they wanted and they created a, a constitution that was very, very, very radical. And it, and, and it gave, um, autonomy to 11 uh, or um, indigenous uh, First Nations, uh, it changed everything. And it was uh, it was rejected. They went way too far, in, although they got a majority when they-, they Rejected in a, in a referendum by the public? Yeah, 62% of people voted against that. So now there's a second attempt. And this is going to be much more uh, reasonable and uh, it's going to support the free market, but at the same time, it will guarantee social rights. So pensions guaranteed by the government, education, high quality education guaranteed by the government. So it's the UN uh, uh, list of social rights that is going to be guaranteed. So, but it's, they added an article, a section to the constitution that says they are guaranteed, but they will be provided subject to being funded by the, the ha, uh, having enough funding so the tax system has to, so it, the, you cannot run a deficit. So we'll see that there's gonna be a referendum in December for this second attempt at the constitution. So it might be more of a kind of a constitution of uh, desires as opposed to uh, with with some reality check here that you, not everything yeah, so, so constitutionally, I, I, in writing this book and also in writing my previous book on, uh, on FDR, I've been looking at constitutional law and many scholars divided the type of constitutions into aspirational constitutions and protective constitutions that protect some gains that have been attained. So the US is a protective constitution, it protects individual rights. And the Chilean new constitution will be an aspirational constitution that will set what can transpire to become, right? Um, and, and the question is, if you have aspirational constitution to make sure that it, it, first, judges don't make laws. And so the country is not run by a whole bunch of judges. Um, and second, that uh, it doesn't force the government to uh, get into huge deficits to actually provide those social services. So let's uh, let's round out the hour here. Give us a quick tour around Latin America. Where do you see things? You know, starting with Mexico heading south, because uh, we, we've done a lot of uh, conversations about uh, Europe and Ukraine, and uh, we'll we'll start talking about China in this podcast. A lot of other topics that are more U.S. oriented, like personal finance, but and then things like economic history. We had. Uh, Roger Lowenstein talk about his recent book about how 
Lincoln funded the Civil War, fascinating how he instituted things that are very similar to today's uh, institutions. But uh, we haven't really looked carefully at uh, other, you know, South America, Latin America, but also Africa. So I'm definitely going to want to want to have you back to talk about that. But let's let's have a tour of South America. What's going on? Yeah, well, Mexico, the president uh, is a tour de force. He's uh, pushing, pushing, pushing. He is uh, a very interesting fellow, a populist in some ways. At the same time, he is uh, very prudent when it comes to uh, fiscal policy. So he doesn't like deficits. Um, and uh, he's now preparing for his successor. And uh, he has called uh, uh, for a uh, pseudo primary, and there are three uh, people, including the uh, uh, lady who is a, a woman who is a ma uh, uh, mayor of Mexico City. Uh, 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 she's a scientist uh, who will probably be. Well, she's probably going to be the next the next uh, president. Uh, the country has been growing slowly. There is a lot of uh, hope on nearshoring. Companies moving away from China and setting home uh, in Mexico. Um, I think that it's being overestimated how much it will contribute uh, to Mexico's uh, growth. There are some some uh, calculations that say one half of one percent per year of higher growth, which is not very high, but I think it's going to be even lower than that. What's been remarkable is that the peso dollar rate has been very stable. Um, and actually, the peso has strengthened. What about the drug? What about the drug uh, wars down there? Are they getting worse, better? I think that they are sort of uh, in a steady state, uh, pretty bad, uh, but not getting um, notably uh, worse. Uh, although we go, a group of uh, economists, we go every year to Mexico, uh, to uh, one of the state, to uh, the state of Sonora. And we've been doing this now for 25 years. Um, and uh, Milton Friedman used to go there, and uh, George Schultz came a couple of times, and it's and Krieger goes there every year, and Deirdre Machowski. So it's a group of libertarians, uh, pro-market people. Last year, we go during President Day's weekend. Last year was the first time that we got police escorts from the airport to the five stars or seven stars or zillion stars. Hacienda Hotel where we stay. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, we didn't see anything, nothing happened to us, but at least the fact that they provide us uh, two trucks with machine guns mounted on them, pickup trucks, uh, one um, in front of our car and one on behind it tells you something. So, it's, uh, yeah. So, if you go down, and I'm going to skip uh, uh, Central America, although Nicaragua, it's a big problem. El Salvador is interesting because the president uh, adopted Bitcoin as a um, as, as one of the two currencies. The dollar, they don't have a national currency for a while now. So, it's dollar and Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin move was a big failure. Um, and and, and the, the bid-ass spreads are too big and and there are many problems. So that that's uh, that attempt that didn't work. But um, he has become very famous worldwide because of the way he has handled the crime situation, where he's put everyone, uh, every member of gangs in jail, and he's been accused of violating human rights. But he has a rate of approval in El Salvador of about eighty percent because now 
people can send their kids out in the street to play soccer or baseball or whatever it is that they play there uh, without being afraid that they're going to be killed by some gang member in a drive. I met him. I actually met him and his wife in his house. I was working with UNICEF on uh, fiscal sustainability and generational accounting in, in uh, El Salvador. So I met him before he was right before he was elected. Uh, uh, interesting person. Yeah. Um, so, so that that's interesting. And Nicaragua is a disaster. The Sandinistas are back uh, in the form of Daniel Ortega. Uh, a big issue in in uh, in uh, Central America is remittances. Uh, so they get so many remittances that the currency is very strong in all of these countries. It's a Dutch disease type of thing. So the currency becomes so strong that their exports are not um so so i think that's a big question what to do about remittance so um, i i've been advising the central bank of guatemala uh on the issue and and it's it is uh, uh they, they they don't they have not in general in all of Central america not accepted that this is a permanent structural change in their economic picture right. I mean, the 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 Guatemalan migrants that live in uh, LA are not going to go back to Guatemala, and they will not stop sending money to their mothers. Uh, that's and that's so good... you will they will get fifteen percent of GDP in the form of remittances every year for the I don't know the next uh, twenty five years at least one generation, right? So uh, maybe and... maybe the answer is to have the, the stuff invested. Back abroad in a global index. That's that's what I that's what I told them, and we explored also um, um, uh, diaspora bonds. So to sell bonds to uh, the Guatemalans that live in uh, in the U.S. and so uh, yeah, so there there are. I mean, the big oh, thing is. This is the transfer, the old transfer problem that J.M. Keynes, uh, John Maynard Keynes, and and Olin discussed about after World War One. I. I mean, right. you know, you get a big transfer, something is going to happen to relative prices in order for the transfer to actually take place. Yeah. So tell us about Brazil and then uh, Colombia, Venezuela. Venezuela, we can skip over. I think everybody. Yeah. Knows. So Col Col Colombia is very interesting. It's elected, as you know, President Gustavo Petro, who is a former guerrilla fighter. Uh, so he's a guy who was in the jungle for decades fighting uh, the, the establishment far, far left. He had a cabinet that was quite reasonable, had at least two uh, economists that were highly respected. One, the uh, secretary of uh, education, uh, Gaviria, and the other one as secretary um, of uh, the treasury. Uh, Jose Antonio Ocampo, who is at, I was at Columbia, now he's back at, at Columbia University in New York. And he fired both of them because he said they are too neoclassical. And um, to give you a picture, uh, Jose Antonio is a co-author of Joe Stiglitz and he's to the left of Joe Stiglitz. So they are not really neoliberal in any sense of the word. You, can, you really have to stretch the term, but it's moving, the country's moving to the left um, and uh, uh, he has uh, threatened that if uh, the Congress does not approve his uh, proposals, uh, he's going to call uh, the people to demonstrate and to uh, pressure. To, uh, so uh, uh, not very good. Uh, Peru, it's, uh, uh, Ecuador, 
the, it's a mess. Uh, it was the only only one of two countries that had no the, where the head of state or head of government was not a leftist. Uh, but he got into trouble, and now he called snap election, and probably the left is going to win. Now, one of the advantages of Ecuador is that it's dollarized and it has it doesn't have a currency of its own, and inflation at least is in check for now. If you don't have a currency of your own, you can always bring it back. So that happened in Liberia, for instance, in, in Africa. So uh, it's great while it lasts and if you behave, but it's... Uh, so then going, so Peru, political uh, upheaval, every Peruvian president is either uh, in jail or uh, has, every Peruvian former president has been in, indicted. Um, right now, so, so the, the, the last one who was elected uh, was indicted, he was forced to resign. Um, and, but, but there's no coup in the, technical sense of the word, the, the, the constitutional process takes place. So the vice president takes over and if the vice president leaves then the head of the uh, lower house of Congress. So the, the succession is working. And it's remarkable because the economy continues to work more or less doing okay. And the currency is very stable and they have uh, for 25 years now, the same central bank governor who is a great economist, Julio Velarde from, uh, he has a PhD from Brown, very unassuming guy and runs great monetary policy and really 25 years of stable currency. Chile, we've talked a lot about already. Right. Bolivia, right. a big problem. They are <laughs> selling, uh, they have a stable currency. Bolivia has a fixed exchange rate. 6.86 bolivianos uh, to the dollar. And uh, when I show the picture to my students of the exchange rate in Bolivia, it actually moves. The students never read the scale, but it moves from 686 to 689 and 684. So yeah, there are spikes because the scale, but but no, it's fixed. fixed. But it, it's overvalued and they run out of international reserves. So what they are doing now is selling their monetary reserves in the form of gold. So they're selling gold in the open market. That will probably keep them afloat until the election and then they're going to devalue the currency and God knows what happens there. So- and this is still Morales running things? No, no, Morales, Morales was lost the election and, and so now uh, is uh, his number three guy, maybe number four guy, so he, decided you're going to run and he won. But now the guy, now that he's in the presidency, of course, he doesn't want to take orders from Morales. So uh, right. Morales is really pissed, right? I mean, I chose you and you should uh, be in cahoots with me. The guy said, no, I'm the president now. I am the leader. You you go home. What about Argentina? Where, where's that? Argentina, they're going to have elections in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, big mess. 100% um, uh, inflation, right? Yeah, inflation is moving towards 150%. Among economists, big discussion is whether to dollarize or not dollarize. Same discussion as in 2021. Uh, 20, excuse me, 20, 2001. That's what so, I was pushing Domingo to do back in at that time. Dollarize. So now the question is whether they should do that or no. And and it's a big, big debate. And and uh, you don't know. I mean, if you if you dollarize now. Uh, on the basis of the international reserves that the country has, 
the currency would have to be depreciated by, I don't know, it, the dollar would have to go up by 500%. But you don't know because if you dollarize, uh, maybe billions and billions of dollars that the origins have abroad will come back into the country, right? Right. Uh, and so then you're going to have a lot of dollars and you, the, the other, so, so that's a big discussion. And the uh, opposition to the Peronists is uh, fragmented and they are fighting among each other, which means that maybe the Peronists will win and Argentina will continue to be a basket case, except in the soccer field where they could, they will probably win the next World Cup as well. <laughs> and what about Brazil? Let's stop with Brazil. Yeah, so uh, Brazil, uh, Lula came back into uh, power. Before him, Bolsonaro, who was sort of a Trump guy, but had a very good economic team, which was um, uh, led by Paulo Guedes, a Chicago grad, uh, who then became a, uh, an investment banker. And, and, and uh, uh, so uh, very solid foundations. For instance, Petrobras. Uh, which was a basket case company today is a very solid um, oil company. They sold uh, all their sort of uh, uh, assets that were not related to their core business and they're doing exploration and refining and, and it's a great company. Um, uh, inflation is uh, very low, as I said, lower than the US, but interest rates are very high. The policy rate is 13% and inflation is 4%. So. Real rate, nine percent. Wow. Okay. So it's wow, right? So if you are an investor, you can bet that they're going to lower the interest rate, so the price of bonds will go up. So fixed income, you can make a little money with, with that trade. We don't know when they're going to do it, though. <laughs> well, so um, well, this is great. This has given us a whole tour of where things are. In general, it looks like South America has moved sideways uh, or, or sit downwards, not necessarily upwards. This is the, the, you know, the Chilean hope that things would really continue to grow dramatically. Uh, it looks like we've got the same story that we've had for decades in general. Is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, I, I think that, that you said it well, it's I'm moving sideways, but, um, the, the, the point is that, that I tried to convince my friends uh, in South America is that they cannot give up. And the uh, battle for ideas should continue and we should defend our ideas of uh, democracy, uh, free markets, competition, openness, and low inflation. Well, great, Sebastian. Thank you so much. We've got a, a real Chicago boy who's not a Chicago boy in the sense of the uh, pejorative uh, version. Uh, but uh, somebody who's really contributed to uh, try and make a difference uh, to everybody, poor, rich, middle class, throughout South America, throughout the world. And uh, one of the premier economists, please read Sebastian's book. Give us the title one more time. Want to show us the book? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, published by Princeton University Press. And the title is The Chile Project. That's related to the State Department project to uh, push uh, free market ideas into South America. And the subtitle is The Story of the Chicago Boys and the Downfall of Neoliberalism. Cool. All right, Sebastian, thanks again. We'll have you back. Talk about Africa. All the best. Thank you, Larry. It's uh, been an honor to be in your show. <laughs>